Are you a graduate student in theology, philosophy, or a related field seeking employment? The Thomistic Institute is seeking a part-time research assistant to support the scholarly work of our Fall 2023 McDonald Agape Visiting Scholar, Professor Adam Idle of the University of Dallas. Professor Idle's research focuses on Christian moral theology, particularly in the Thomistic and Dominican traditions. The ideal candidate will be presently enrolled in or have completed a graduate degree program in theology, philosophy, or a related field, and have a reading knowledge of Latin, French, and or German. The assistantship begins immediately and concludes on Friday, December 15th, 2023. Candidates must be available for up to 20 hours of work per week. To apply, please submit a CV or resume by email to thomisticinstitute at dhs.edu. That's thomisticinstitute at dhs.edu. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, Grant us by that same Spirit that we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation, through Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all back. Thanks for coming back. (laughs) The title of our second conference is By our wounds we are healed. This should startle us a little, perhaps. It is by Christ's wounds that we are healed. Only God saves man. Only God heals man. The God-man bore our sins, all of our sufferings, in his own body, precisely so that in and through his wounds we might be healed by God. So what does it mean to say, by our wounds, we are healed? First, what does it not mean? What can this not mean? It cannot mean that we somehow heal ourselves. We're speaking about healing here in terms of the healing of evils. Evils suffered, evils committed, and there's no possible way that Man can heal himself from evil. So in saying, by our wounds we are healed, we're certainly not talking about man saving himself somehow, healing himself. We are also not saying that simply being wounded or experiencing suffering is somehow in itself healing or salvific. No commonsensical philosophy could accept a claim like that, simply because you're wounded, that in itself is healing. What we are saying, and what we want to consider 
today is that the mystery of our salvation, which is made real and present in Christ, and specifically in his passion and sacred wounds, is a mystery that we can enter into, a mystery that we can participate in, specifically in and through our passion, our suffering, our wounds. God has made it possible for us to be united with Christ in his mystery. We can suffer with him. We can be poor and become poorer with him. And in doing so, open ourselves, unite ourselves to the healing and salvation that are found in him. You and I can enter into the mystery of Christ's holy poverty, his saving wounds, and live that mystery, live his mystery in our poverty, in our wounds. By his grace, we can even come to live that mystery so completely that it's ultimately no longer we who live his mystery in our lives by participation, but it's Christ himself who lives his mystery in us, in our flesh, in our wounds. It is no longer I who live, St. Paul exclaims, but it is Christ who lives in me. St. Paul is our great teacher here. So we might begin by considering the story of his own conversion. Saul was a man of tremendous strengths immensely learned, incredibly gifted. And with all of his strength, all of his learning of the law, all of his great natural gifts and talents, Saul persecuted Christ. That's what he did with his strength. This great man of God devoted all of his considerable strength and talents to persecuting the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus Christ. What we see then in St. Paul, in the conversion of this terrifying zealot, who went to all lengths possible to exterminate the followers of the way, what we see is a conversion that stands at the very heart of the Christian life, but it's a most strange and unexpected conversion. It is the conversion from strength to weakness. The conversion of St. Paul, conversion that stands in some ways at the center of each of our Christian lives, is a conversion from strength to weakness. Saul was converted from living out of his very real and significant strengths, those strengths that had him on the road to damnation, to living instead out of the truth of his immeasurable weakness, and indeed, ultimately, to living only in the weakness and the poverty of the poor Christ. St. Paul becomes the great teacher of what it means to be poor with Christ, to find in our wounds, in our sufferings, in our every weakness, the place of our strength, the very place where we can be united to the poor Christ and opened to his power at work within us. St. Paul expounds 
his theology of weakness, we might call it, in the 12th chapter of his second letter to the Corinthians. He says this, speaking about himself. I know someone in Christ who, 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up to the third heaven. And I know that this person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard ineffable things which no one may utter. About this person I will boast. But about myself, I will not boast except about my weaknesses. Although if I should wish to boast, I would not be foolish, for I would be telling the truth, but I refrain, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me because of the abundance of revelations. Therefore, that I might not become too elated, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, an angel of Satan, to beat me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I begged the Lord about this, that it might leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. I will boast rather most gladly of my weaknesses in order that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and constraints for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul uses this image of a thorn to speak about some particular evil that he was given to suffer. He doesn't tell us what this evil was because it's not important for us to know the particulars of Paul's suffering. What is important is for us to recognize the mystery. The mystery that St. Paul proclaims here is a mystery that applies to every evil that we suffer as well. It's the mystery that God's grace is sufficient for us. That God's power will be made perfect in our weaknesses, in our sufferings, in our afflictions and injuries, in our defects and privations. God's grace is sufficient and can only come to full flourishing in the place of our thorns, of our weaknesses. Knowing this mystery, living this mystery, allows us with Paul to boast most gladly of our weaknesses, because that is where the power of Christ dwells within us. When I am weak, I am strong. If I have found in my wounds, in my weaknesses, the doorway to union with the poor Christ, to participation in his mystery of holy poverty, of saving wounds, 
This is the mystery that we're considering today. How we can be joined to Christ in his poverty through the realities of poverty, of thorns in our own lives. What this mystery shows us is that God does not wish to save us in some abstract way, some disincarnate manner. God wills to save us in the most concrete way possible, in the reality, the depths of our greatest need. He wishes to save us there, in those concrete particulars. The reality of our wounds, our weaknesses, our sufferings. God wills to save us not only from these evils, but in and through these evils. God can make even evil an instrument of his saving work, such that our wounds are the very context of our holiness. Our wounds are the very context, the locus, the particular locus in each of our individual lives of our call to holiness, to union with God, the place where Christ has come to meet us, to draw us into his own life. He descended from heaven to the deepest depths of our human need to find us there, to meet us there, but not to stay there with us, rather to join us to himself in his poverty, to fill us with his divine life, and to raise us up, to exalt us. First, on the throne of his cross, and ultimately, in the kingdom of his glory. If this is God's plan for our salvation, if our wounds are to be the very context of our holiness, then like St. Paul, we have to face the full reality of those wounds the every instantiation of our poverty. And this is not easy, nor is it pleasant. It's not easy because we are very easily deceived, most especially about ourselves. There are no deceptions that we more readily cling to than self-deceptions. Who really wants to boast about their weaknesses? Who really wants to acknowledge, even to themselves, the full scope of their limitations, their problems, their failures, their hidden temptations, their physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual sufferings? None of this is pleasant. The catalog of my wounds and weaknesses is, in fact, the very thing that I want to hide most from everyone from every human person, even those closest to me, from God, as if that were possible, and even from myself, so that I don't have to bear the weight of such a heavy truth of just how weak and limited and wounded and sinful I am. 
This is not an easy task. But what the gospel reveals to us, what St. Paul teaches us, is that this narrow way does lead to life. It leads to healing, to the real freedom that comes from living in the truth. And the truth is ultimately this, that I am not the sum total of my sins and weaknesses. I am the sum total of the Father's love for me. You are not the sum total of your sins and weaknesses. You are the sum total of his love, the love that created you, that holds you in being, that draws you to himself, that you might live in it, abide in it forever. When we look at our weaknesses, when we are confronted with our wounds, not to mention our sins, the great deceiver tempts us to believe that this is all that we are, that this is the full reality of who I am. And because it's such an unattractive reality, I'm impelled to hide, to deny, to run, to flee from it. The truth of the matter is more nuanced. Our wounds, our weaknesses, our sufferings, our sins are real. They are indeed part of the reality of each of our lives, the history of our lives, the ongoing unfolding of our lives. And they are a significant part precisely because of how they can lead us to Christ, to our salvation in him. But they are not the full reality of our lives, nor are they the ultimate reality, the most important reality. They are meant to be an instrument in God's saving plan. Christ's wounded sacred humanity is the instrument of our salvation. But God has ordained that our wounds should also be instruments of our salvation, not in and of themselves, simply, but as united to him. So if all of this is true, the question for us is, how do we find Christ in our wounds? How do we actually meet him there and enter into his mystery of holy poverty? To answer this question, let's go back to the desert. In the early centuries of Christianity, many men and women left their homes, left the cities, civilization even, and went into the deserts of Egypt in search of God, to live for God alone. They wanted to leave behind everything of this world in order to find God and dwell with him in a complete and absolute way. But what they found in the desert was not only God, they first found themselves, they encountered themselves in a way and to a degree that they had never encountered before. Spending time alone, in silence, with little to no earthly distractions, opens wide the door to encountering all that is within us in a much more complete and authentic manner. One starts to become aware of all of the evil thoughts, 
the disordered impulses, the long-buried resentments and hurts, along with all of the other hidden sufferings and temptations and sins that can consume so much of our interior lives, even when we're not aware of it, even when we've distracted ourselves from it or are looking the other way. It is precisely the unrelenting silence and solitude of the desert that closes the door to all the worldly avenues of distracting ourselves, running from ourselves, and instead opens the door to this unavoidable confrontation with the truth that lies within. Ultimately, the truth of our profound woundedness. It takes great courage and true humility to face this truth head on. It can take a lot of time, too. It can be a very long process. To put aside all of the smoke and mirrors, the facades and self-deceptions, all of the ways in which we like to portray ourselves to the world and even in the mirror to ourselves, to put all of it aside and to accept the reality, the full reality as it is, to simply live in the truth, unafraid. This living in the truth, however, which is the life of Christian humility, this living in the truth opens within us the space for a much greater encounter after we've encountered ourselves our desperate need, we are opened to encountering the one who has come into the desert to find us there. We come to discover that we are not alone in the desert. The poor are not alone in their distress because the poor Christ has come there first. He has entered these depths, and he waits for us there in our need, in our nakedness, our vulnerability, our poverty. God has come to be with us there in our suffering, in our wounds, not simply as a companion who walks alongside of us, but the one who has entered into the depths of our suffering, who knows our poverty and our need infinitely better than we could ever know it. The one who has gone so far as to take it all upon himself so that he might be the remedy, the healing, that he might fill us with the riches of his own divine life. Living humbly in the truth is the royal highway to encountering the living God. In fact, it's the only highway, the only path to encountering God in truth. To the degree that we live in self-deception, we cannot encounter the full truth of who God is. But confronting and contending with our poverty, our wounds in the desert, opens us to encountering the poor Christ, the God who has come to be with us, 
as well as opening us to yet another encounter. In the desert, we find not only ourselves, not only the poor Christ, we also find the devil, the tempter. God called his people Israel to journey for 40 years through the desert before they were to reach the promised land. And time and time again, throughout this seeming, seemingly interminable journey, the Israelites encountered temptation in the desert. The temptation to grumble against God, to complain, to doubt, to fail to believe that God was in their midst in the desert throughout the whole of this very very trying sojourn. To be poor with Christ in the desert, to live in the truth of our weakness, our littleness, our poverty with the poor Christ demands great faith. It's only possible with great faith, believing in God's word, that he has come to be with us, that he has made a remedy out of the poverty of his Christ. Because this is a faith that will be constantly tested, especially in the desert, by all kinds of temptations, by lies, the deceptions of the great deceiver. Is God really with me? Does he really know me? Does he really know my suffering, my pain? Is he really going to heal me? And if he is, then why hasn't he done so already? After all this time, why am I still poor and alone? God's saving plan is hidden in a mystery. A mystery that can be very difficult to believe at times. Prophet Isaiah exclaimed, who would believe what we have heard? Who would believe that this is God's plan? To empty himself such that he would be spurned and avoided by men, like one from whom you turn away your face, one who is held in no esteem. Who would believe that by his wounds we are somehow to be healed, and even more so, that by our wounds we are to be healed? Only those who are poor enough to live by the word of God, to live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, only those can believe and accept such a mystery. Only those who are poor enough to live by God's word alone. Faith in that word. The great mystery of our salvation does not end here in the desert. Our salvation, our healing, begins in the desert. It must begin in the desert because this is where the poor Christ has come to meet us in our poverty. There is no escaping the desert in our journey to the promised land. 
that place of barrenness, of emptiness, where we have to confront the truth and encounter the answer to our need in Christ. But our journey does not end there. Christ leaves the desert in order to climb the mountain, to take up his cross and carry it to the hill of Calvary. If the point of the desert is to come to know and to accept our poverty, our wounds, in order that we might encounter the poor, wounded Christ in the truth of our need. If the point of the desert is to know and accept and encounter the poor Christ, the point of the mountain is to be conformed to Christ in his complete self-emptying on the cross, to be made like him, poorer, ultimately to the point of complete emptiness, like him, so that we might find in him God's remedy for our sins and for the wages of our sins, which is death. To follow Christ, to climb his holy mountain, then means to become even poorer, We are poor to begin with. Our fallen human condition is weighed down by all kinds of poverties. But taking up our cross and following Christ to Calvary means not simply knowing that truth and accepting it and finding Christ in it. Taking up our cross and following Christ up the mountain means willingly choosing to embrace the full poverty of Christ. To make his self-emptying kenosis our own by his grace. What we're really speaking about here in the call to follow Christ up the mountain is voluntary conformity with Christ crucified. If anyone would come after me, he must willingly deny himself take up his cross, and follow me. We might think about this mystery of voluntary conformity with Christ crucified in terms of detachment, letting go. The call is to climb the mountain. But the higher one climbs the mountain of the Lord, the less he can carry with him. To ascend this holy mountain is only possible by letting go of more and more and more, by being stripped of more and more and more. So that by the end, when we reach the summit of the mountain, at the cross, we stand there completely emptied, naked with Christ. There is nothing left that we are holding on to, not even our own lives. Our Lord says, whoever wishes to preserve his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will save it. Now, it's a natural and a good thing to want to preserve our lives. It's our deepest instinct, self-preservation. We should want to preserve our lives. And indeed, we should want to hold on to and preserve the many goods that are part of our lives. But what Jesus is saying here is that in the end, this is simply not possible. 
You cannot hold on to a finite good forever. Whatever that finite good may be, your own life, people you love, the work, the hobbies, the things that you pursue, the talents that you enjoy, all of it is limited, imperfect, ultimately passing. You cannot hold on to a finite good forever. It's like trying to hold on to a handful of sand. The more you cling to it, the more you necessarily lose it. You simply can't hold on to a handful of sand forever. It's too small, too finite, too passing. It, it passes too easily. It's not that Jesus does not want us to enjoy the goods, the real goods of our life in this world, of all the goods that we enjoy, especially the good of human relationships, human love. But he is admonishing us here that we must not live for these goods as if they were the ultimate good. They are good, but only in a limited way. Only God is the supreme good, the perfect, eternal, unlimited good, and the good that we have been made for because he has made us for himself. Christ is really telling his disciples here and saying, whoever wishes to, to preserve his life will lose it. He's really telling them to live in reality, to be realistic. You can't hold on to a finite good forever. So live in the truth. The truth that if we are to reach God, to attain unending union with God on his holy mountain, we have to let go of other goods, meaning we have to grow in detachment. Not that we have to empty our lives of everything that is not God. We don't all have to follow these desert fathers and mothers into the deserts of Egypt. But we do have to continually reorder our lives, and most especially our loves, reorder them interiorly, such that we do love God with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength, our whole soul, as we heard in the gospel yesterday. We can enjoy all the good things that God has given us, allowed us to partake in in this world, without living for those good things as if they are what is most important to my happiness, most essential to my flourishing. Christ wants us to live in this reality, in this truth. But we also have to accept the truth that detachment is a kind of death, a kind of mortification. Whoever wishes to follow me must willingly deny himself, Christ says. We have to recognize that while there is goodness in all of the things that I love, those loves have to be rightly ordered, reordered in my life. And that reordering requires real asceticism, penance, mortification, denying ourselves. It's not such an easy thing for us fallen human beings to 
put our loves in right order. And so some real self-denial, some real penance and mortification is necessary so that we can see things more and more clearly, see the truth, reality as it is, that we're not made ultimately for passing goods, for bodily goods, even human spiritual goods. This is about dying to ourselves so that we come to the point of no longer living for ourselves, but living for him who suffered and died for us. We die to ourselves so that we can be free to no longer live for ourselves. This is the great struggle for fallen man, to live for myself in all the ways that that can play out in our lives. St. Paul says to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, yet I live, no longer I, but Christ lives in me. Insofar as I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who has loved me and given himself up for me. This is the goal, the height of our high calling in Christ, to ascend the mountain of the Lord, following after him, to empty ourselves like him more and more, becoming poorer and poorer, so that we will have the full freedom to give our lives away, as he gave his life away freely, to be crucified with him, to die with him and to rise with him, being healed by his wounds. St. Paul notes, however, one last essential point for making this journey. One truth without which we cannot possibly ever climb the mountain to Calvary. St. Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who has loved me. I live by faith in the Son of God who has loved me and given himself up for me. What caused Christ to empty himself so completely, to become poor for our sake, and obedient even to the point of death on a cross? Only love could make this kind of complete self-gift possible. Only love makes it possible for Christ to lay down his life freely. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down freely. He is not under compulsion. He's not simply acting under someone else's orders. He's certainly not acting against his own will. He is simply living in love. He lives in the love of his Father, a love that is so great, so boundless, that it overflows into love for us, his poor creatures, who are also his blessed creatures, because we have been made like him, for him. The point is this, that if we are to follow Christ up the mountain to Calvary, if we are to empty ourselves and become more and more poor with him, even to the point of death, we can only do so by living always and continually from another mountain, the mountain of the Transfiguration, Mount Tabor. 
living from the truth revealed on that holy mountain. It is there that the primordial truth was spoken once again by the Father to the Son. You are my beloved. That truth that is the unending communication between the Father and the Son, the truth that was spoken at Christ's baptism, and which at this pivotal moment in the journey toward Jerusalem is spoken in the presence of his disciples. Because Jesus will also say to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so I also love you. The Father loved the Son as his beloved. We, who have been made sons and daughters of God in baptism, are the objects of that same love. The Father loves us as his beloved sons and daughters in Christ. And Christ loves us as his beloved brothers and sisters. And it is only the truth and the reality of this love, which is stronger than death, that makes it possible for us to lose ourselves in love, to give up everything for that love, to live in that love forever. Being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, Pope Benedict XVI wrote. Being a Christian is the result of an encounter with the love of God, an encounter with the God who is love. The whole of the Christian life, Pope Benedict says, can be summarized in this one line from the first letter of St. John. We have come to know and believe in the love that God has for us. This is what it means to be a Christian. Indeed, this is how we are able to live the Christian life. To come to know and believe in the love that God has for us. This is what St. Paul gives testimony to. I live by faith in the Son of God who has loved me. This is what Paul lives from and what he lives for. He has come to know and believe in that personal saving love. And so too for each of us, coming to know and believe in the love, the personal, willed, super abundant love that God has for each one of us is what makes the Christian life possible. It's what makes it possible to follow Christ all the way all the way to the cross where divine love is on full and perfect display. Coming to know and believe in that love must be the solid rock foundation of any true Christian life. But we can only believe what we have heard. And so we must hear from the mouth of the Father from the mouth of Christ, again and again, you are my beloved. That word that the Father spoke at the moment of your baptism, you are my beloved, I have claimed you. 
for my, for my own. We must continue to hear that word spoken to us in the scriptures, spoken to us in the depths of our hearts, spoken to us in the desert, spoken to us on the mountain of the transfiguration. Encountering Christ and his love is of first and greatest importance in the Christian life. And especially encountering the truth of that personal love in the depths, the desert of our poverty, our woundedness. Meeting God and his love there assures us, grounds us in the firm truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. No wound, no weakness, no sin can separate us from the love of God who is more powerful, whose love is able to destroy sin, to heal suffering. The one who is waiting for us there to tell us of his love. This encounter is of first and greatest importance. But the Christian life doesn't end with this encounter. It begins with it. It is ever sustained by our continual encounter with the love of God. But our journey ends with God's love being made perfect in us. God's love being made perfect in us through our being made like Christ, our perfect conformity to divine love which is revealed on the cross. That love that says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. For there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Christ has made us his friends. He has come to be our friend, has come to offer us the fullness of the Father's love so that we might lay down our lives for him, with him, in him, through him, that that love of God might be made more and more perfect in us. Following Christ up the mountain, in penance, in obedience, and ultimately in love, is about becoming ever more poor with Christ, more and more empty, so that we might be more and more open and capable of receiving the gift of God the saving love of God, which does heal every wound, every sin, which unites us, draws us deeper and deeper into the heart of God, where we are destined to live forever. In the end, then, God's ultimate antidote, his ultimate remedy and solution to every evil and suffering is love, his love. The love that conquers death, the love that is so powerfully manifest in the wounds that Christ willingly suffered for our sake. Who would believe what we have heard? We thought of him as one stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he came to be pierced for our sins, to be crushed for our iniquity. He came to bear the punishment that makes us whole, so that by his wounds and by our wounds in union with him, we might be healed.
The last thing to consider then, briefly, is what this healing looks like. What is it that we should expect in our lives? If we come to know Christ in poverty, if we become poorer and poorer with him, more and more detached, more and more filled with his love, able to lay down our lives, what is it that we should expect? I expect that Father Andrew will speak more about this reality of healing in our next two conferences as we consider this mystery of salvation in the life of glory. But we'll just conclude here this morning with a few thoughts about the healing that Christ has won for us. We've talked, we've been talking about two kinds of evils, evils that we suffer, evils that we commit. So we might also distinguish between two aspects of healing, salvation and redemption. Salvation is the forgiveness and the healing of our sins. To be saved from our sins, the evils we have willingly committed, and from all of their consequences. Salvation, this most abundant gift of healing, is on offer to each and every one of us here and now. The forgiveness of sins has been made possible through the passion and the death of Christ and is offered to us through his church in the sacraments, in baptism, in the Eucharist, especially in the sacrament of confession. The forgiveness of our sins is readily available always to the one who seeks it. This most important healing is here for the taking. To be forgiven of our sins, to have the eternal debt of punishment for our sins wiped away, is to be healed in the most profound sense possible. It is literally to be saved. But there's also the healing of the evils that we suffer from. All of those poverties that we encountered in the desert. And the healing of these evils is what we might call redemption, a broader term. Christ has come to save us from our sins, which indeed is primary. But he has also come to make all things new to recreate our fallen, wounded human nature by the power of his resurrection. St. Thomas asks, why did Christ rise from the dead? The passion and the death of Christ were infinitely sufficient to atone for every sin and win forgiveness for every man's sin, such that it could have been possible, indeed it would have been possible if God so willed it, that Christ bore our sins in his own body, that he died for us and did not rise from the dead. That could have been God's plan, and it would have been supremely efficacious. He paid the price for our sins. He bore the punishment 
that makes us whole in his passion and death. So why does he rise after having conquered sin by his death? He rises from the dead to win for us yet a further gift. In addition to the gift of salvation from sin, Christ goes so far as to merit for us the gift of our complete redemption, that is, our complete recreation in him. In rising, we find the promise and the grace of our resurrection, our being made new. Not only are we saved from sin and from eternal death, Christ has won for us the grace to be recreated in him, the new Adam. The gift of complete redemption. The promise of the healing of every evil suffered. All of the ways in which our human nature has been wounded is no longer perfectly intact. All of this is included in the promised redemption of making all things new. And this is a gift which begins in us here and now, in the life of grace. But it's a gift that will only come to completion in the life of glory. This second kind of healing will not be completed here and now. As the book of Revelation says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with the human race. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will always be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain, for the old order has passed away. And the one who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. The important point that we need to grapple with here in considering the healing that Christ has won for us, is that the healings of our sufferings, our poverties, all of the evils that afflict us, that healing will only be complete in glory, in the kingdom of heaven, where God is all in all, where the old order has entirely passed away and all is made new. We can, very importantly, and of First importance, we can receive the complete forgiveness of our sins here and now, which makes it possible for us to live in true friendship with God. That is always possible through the gift of Christ made present to us in the church. But while we continue our sojourn, through the desert of this land of exile, we will continue to be subject to suffering. And in some ways, the more we're conformed to Christ's love, the more we are conformed to his suffering, the more we have a share in his own suffering. 
This too, however, reflects God's wisdom hidden in a mystery. St. Thomas asks the question, why does the grace of baptism not heal man from every evil that he suffers, from every malum pene, these evils of punishment we've been talking about? He affirms that the grace of baptism, the grace of baptism is so extraordinary that that grace could have healed us of every evil suffered, not only the evils we commit, but also the evils we suffer. The grace of baptism could have healed us from that. And when we are healed of these evils that we suffer in the kingdom of heaven, it will be through the grace of baptism. But why does it not heal us of these evils here and now? Why must we continue to suffer in different ways? St. Thomas sees into the mystery of God's hidden wisdom here. He says this, a wise physician leaves his patient unhealed if curing him would have made him vulnerable to an even greater illness. A wise physician leaves his patient unhealed if he knows that by curing this illness, he would have made him susceptible, vulnerable to a much greater illness. What he is speaking about here is precisely pride, the greatest of all evils, the first sin. That God allows us to continue to suffer with him in different ways, such that we may never believe the lie that we do not need God, that we are self-sufficient, autonomous, have no need of a healer, a savior. It's the very reality that was presented to us in the gospel today. The Pharisee who in pride could not see his own need as the tax collector saw it so clearly. God allows us to continue to experience thorns so that we might also always know that it is his power that saves us, and that power will be made perfect in and through our weaknesses, in order that we might remain in the truth, humble before him. Because the man who is humble, like that tax collector, is the one who is open to receive the gift of God. As Father Jonah preached about, the proud heart, the hardened heart, is so closed that it's of no use. The hardened heart cannot receive the gift of God. To save us, from that greatest of all temptations, that sin which Lucifer gave himself over to, to save us from that, God chooses in his wisdom to allow us to share in his poverty, to allow us to share in his cross, that we might always know our need, the truth of who we are before God, that we can never stand on our own two feet, self-sufficient, without need before God. 
We are always and only before him as creatures who are radically, desperately in need and without cause of ourselves for God to act. We don't cause God to give us the gift of his love. He gives it in his goodness, not because we've merited it, we've earned it. In addition to preserving us from the possibility of a far greater injury, by allowing us to continue to suffer thorns in this life, we are also given the privilege of becoming more and more like Christ, conformed more and more to him in his suffering, in his wounds. Indeed, in the mystical body of Christ, it even becomes possible for us to make up for what is lacking for that suffering in the whole body. True and complete healing will be ours, but only if we are poor. And if we're content to remain poor with Christ, to become even poorer with him, and to see in that poverty the promise of the riches that has been won for us. And so our Lord says to us, blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who learn to no longer make a drama out of their poverty. Who accept it willingly and joyfully because they have put all their trust in the word of God. Blessed are those who know how to love their poverty. Because it is the great opportunity for God to manifest his immense love and mercy. We will be saints the day that our poverty, our weakness, our littleness and nothingness, our wounds, are no longer a subject of sadness and anxiety for us but a subject of peace and joy. For then, God himself will be our wealth, our healing, our sanctity, and our salvation. Questions? Comments? Thoughts? Yes, sir. I just had a question about I guess redemption will not be completed now. I guess redemption is only going to be realized when after the revelation with the new Jerusalem. Yes. So does that mean that before that happens, that going to heaven now, it's in need of more perfect, that we're not really perfect in heaven until the second coming? It's a, it's a very good question. The, the mystery of uh, the life of heaven is a tremendous mystery. You know, it's, it's odd to think about that those who are in heaven, the souls who are in heaven, uh, that there could be something incomplete, something yet to be done. In fact, there is something yet to be done, which is the resurrection of their bodies, this complete making new of all things. But... It's best to try not to think about 
the reality of heaven in earthly terms. Those who live in the beatific vision, who see God face to face, lack nothing at all. And yet, they live in eternity, outside of time, and there is a mystery at play here wherein uh, there will be an end to this world, and the, the kingdom of heaven will be complete in some sense. So, uh, there is mystery here. Maybe Father Andrew will talk about this more in considering the life of glory. But the most important truth is to affirm that those who see God face to face have attained the fullest possible perfection that they are capable of. Yes? So then kind of tying to that response, through the grace of our baptism, when we're saved, despite it being extraordinary, and despite, and even though, like, we're still... You said that in baptism we're not fully healed here and now, so that we're not susceptible to, to pride. And so, but that's that's the grace given on the earthly sense. That's the salvation received on earth. But those experiencing the beatific heaven, I mean, the beatific vision in heaven and eternity, being outside of time, that you're not susceptible to pride no. at that point. And so, when we're saved, there's no beatific vision, but there's that... Friendship with God? Yeah. Yes. When we're saved from our sins, there is uh, union with God, real union, union that's not yet complete in this world, but real union with God, especially in charity, Mm -hmm. comes to its completion in, in glory. Yeah. Can I have another question? Uh, yes. Uh, no, we'll move to somebody else. Okay. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, so when you were quoting St. Thomas when he was talking about Christ as the wise physician, you said, the wise physician leaves his patient unhealed if by healing this illness he would be putting him in greater danger of contracting a worse illness. So um, I guess I read uh, a story of the soul over the last mm. summer oh. and a very particular kind of focal point of St. Therese of Lisieux's spirituality, at least in that in that biography, was that um, I think in her either in her early years of convent or right before she entered, she made a general uh, general confession to her confessor, and he basically said like, "I don't think you've like committed a moral sin in your life." And she she said that to make the point that, or hey, yeah, I guess to drive from the, the point that. Um, it's not necessarily true that those who have been, um, those who were sinners and have been healed necessarily have a greater love for God, a greater capacity to love God than those who never sinned in the first place. So, yeah, could you like touch touch on that? How how that spirituality um, fits fits into Christ being a wise physician and not healing. Sure, so St. Therese, the question is about St. Therese, who uh, uh, her confessor told her that she had not uh, ever committed a mortal sin. And she then explains in her autobiography that she sees in this an even greater gift of mercy from God to have been preserved from grave sin than the mercy that is given to those who have committed grave sin and have been 
forgiven for it. She sees in that a greater kind of salvation, something that comes before and preserves her. Um, how that relates to uh, the, the notion of being saved uh, from suffering. Keep in mind here, and we're, you know, keep going back and forth between these two categories, that evils that we commit are very different than evils that we suffer. So she's talking about being saved from sin. What St. Thomas is talking about in that passage about the wise physician is about evils that we suffer, that the wise physician doesn't, by baptism, heal us of all possible evils that we suffer, because there is a way in the economy of salvation that suffering keeps us ever close to the cross. And Therese certainly was not preserved from evil suffered. Uh, she was preserved in a, in a rather exceptional way from uh, evils committed, but he's talking about something uh, different there with the evils suffered. Thanks very much, Paul Michael. Thank you all. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.